This is Near Dark Radio. 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 Welcome back to Near Dark Radio, you sons of bitches and daughters. I'm joined in the studio today by Mr. Ray Fox. Hello, folks. Ray is a newcomer to the show. We uh, tried to have him on last week on Bastille Day. That didn't work out because of technical issues. So we have him back today to review some of the uh, Bastille Day festivals that the French put on for their lovely nation. Um... We just came from a local production, local production, community theater production of Steel Magnolias, written by a man. Did not we know. Were, we were just wondering about. Get yeah. that closer to your face. Yes. The mic, too. Yeah. Oh. Great production. Again, yeah, written by a man. Yes. Has to be a gay man, we've concluded. Yes. It, it's like an 85% chance. I thought you were going to say an 85-year-old gay man, and I was like, yes! <laughs> yeah. At this point, Correct. at this point, he may be 85. That's, yeah. That may I mean, he's probably dead by well. now. He was at least 50 when he wrote that. Yeah, because they didn't say adapted by, it just said written by, so they must have basically just who, I, someone adapted it because the well, entire... Well, it came, bef- that, the play came before the movie. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. No. Well, it's... It was it was very good. It was I was shocked that it was written by a man. I didn't, as you can tell, I'm clearly a philistine because I didn't know it was a play before it was a movie. <laughs> Shows you how I'm paying attention. I didn't either till yeah. I just assume when there's a play and it's not a musical on Broadway, yeah. that it was written first. Yeah, imagine that play is a musical. Gee, I'm sure it is. I'm, sh- I'm looking that up right now. <laughs> you should look it up. God, Steel Magnolia is the musical. The musical. I the, need uh, a kidney. You've got a kidney. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to be a collaborative uh, effort. Yeah. Because there would have to be like country artists and Zydeco yeah. artists. Yeah. But then there would have to be like Trent Reznor to write like the final <laughs> breakdown. Yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. No. No. Not seeing it. No, nope. I, I just don't. That I, good. It would be interesting. It's good. There's not one, but I'm surprised. <laughs> I mean, someone attempted to make a, a musical of American Psycho, which I, if I did drugs, would have loved to have taken drugs and gone and seen for like the two weeks that it was open in London, because <laughs> it would have to be completely fucking insane watching yeah. an American Psycho. It, they it, did, are you saying they did do this? They did do this. Yeah, and and Brett oh, and no. Brett Easton Ellis's uh, most recent kind of like essay. Memoir mashup is most white. recent. Yes, white, white. He uh, he discusses in the final third of the book, final half of the book. It's kind of a, a thread that gets picked up and dropped several times because that's how it happened in real life and how it all right. came together. He discusses them right. making the American Psycho musical, and it was during the period when, when this was pitched to him to be done between. Like 9-11 and 2007-2008 when the economy crashed, when everyone was completely out of their minds and they're like, it'll just make money. We'll just make money. Everything makes money. Everything's going up and up and up and up and up. You know, that second like cocaine burst, that second cocaine burst that happened in American culture after the 80s, which was ironic because his, his sort of coming into public consciousness and fame happened during the first cocaine burst. But they made this, point being, they made this musical and it was... Apparently, 
just very God weird awful. and insane. And oh. but he he basically had I said, mean, you could do it as like an art piece, yeah. like more like an Einstein on the beach type of. Yeah, you, you totally could, and that's why he he had he admits in the he admits in the book that because of things that were going on in his personal life, but also because of the nature of the industry, that there was just no way to know whether it would succeed or fail Mm -hmm. because you could see how it might, but then these people that are funding this were so way out of their element and they were planning to do this and they were just going off of a wild hair and they appeared, he at least kind of uh, implies they were on a fair amount of drugs as one might imagine just in general. (laughs) And they, and in it, opened and it got some okay reviews, but then it died on the vine. But it was this strange thing. I bring it up to say that if you could attempt to make a musical out of that, and I think that the thing that made them think they could do it was Sweeney Todd. Right. It's a bunch of people who'd seen Sweeney Todd, and then they were like, are you going to make a musical about this? I just don't think... See, Sweeney Todd is set in a time and a place where it's conducive to... Being a musical, and it's even you know yeah. Stephen Sondheim is not your typical musical no. composer, so you're not getting you know, doo doo, yeah, ah, yeah, and, and then there's a, again what I was just thinking. <laughs> there's also and the fact that singing. I almost thought there was one point where the like yeah. the I guess the audio they had a, a canned audio for some of the the stage play we saw today. Yeah, they did. It like cut in really briefly, and I was like I. Got the impression she had just said some poignant line, and then there was this like little hint of music, and I was like, "Wait, wait, yeah. is this about to become a musical?" Yeah, is there she were, about to burst into song. There were a couple of moments where the, it was tricky, like that. There was there was some audio stuff that was going on as well with kind drink of the reverb. juice shall be drink the juice. <laughs> that would that would <laughs> <been> fantastic. <laughs> No, it was great. It was great. Uh, though. It, well, I teared up good. a little bit at the yeah, end. I did. I did. I'll, uh, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, I hope I don't have COVID now. <laughs> you were in a middle school auditorium in Robertson County. I probably you have COVID. Have yeah, probably. worse than COVID. Yeah. The so yeah. Last, you're a writer. Yep. I'm a writer by trade. I'm a writer by trade. I write for other people in a technical sense, and then in a literal sense, <laughs> I write. <laughs> I, I write. Uh, yeah, I write for myself. I write uh, fiction. I write articles for people. And uh, did you know that on, I pitch articles to people, I should say. The work that I, the other work that I do is that uh, I write for people who hire me and they just tell me what to do. But sure. When I have sure. my own druthers, yes, I write, uh, I write fiction mostly. Do you have a genre that you tend to wet your beak in more often than others? Uh, no, not really a genre, and that's like a kind of, uh, in, in the stupid world that we live in today, I'm just trying to, if I'm to push everything together that I read and try right, and pull a right. single thread out of it, they would connect them all. I would say that the majority of the stories that I read are just kind of about people trying to get out of bad situations. Man in over his head is kind of... okay. Yeah, which is if if the, most of my favorite movies that I've ever seen, right? Man in over his give head. us like a give us like a archetypical example. Oh, I, I can do one right now. Falling down, yeah, <laughs> falling down. Or honestly, one of the more popular movies. The the best example of a, a movie or a book that has reached 
popular consciousness in probably the past two years that epitomizes the man in over his head genre would be Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler. Still haven't yeah. seen it. It's the, Still haven't seen it. Don't it is, spoil me. Yeah, I won't. <coughs> but it's it. very much a uh, man in over his head film. And then the other one is sort of uh, almost in the Greek sense, just sort of tragedies. Right. You know? So I, because of this, I tend to read more men, I would say. Honestly, but then of the women I that tend I tend to read almost exclusively men. men. Yeah. Like so, Ayn Rand is the only yeah. major female author that I read more than like one book. Yeah. And one could argue that she's not a female author. Yeah, no, one one could. She's a, almost an asexual being of some right. sort. Right. So as most, most libertarians tend to be. Yeah, but then she also had weird stuff where she was like, and I and I find some value in some of the observations that she has, but then others, I'm just like, well, I don't think that's going to work. But no, no, no. She she did like have a cult around her, and she made rules to where like they couldn't have sex exclusively with one another, and then when right. the people she liked fucking the most would have sex with other people, she would get furious. Yeah. Like, it was weird stuff. It was, like, cultish stuff. She, I mean. she was a cult leader. Yeah, she she cult still leader. is. I yeah. mean, yeah. dead and gone, but yeah. My one of my professors once said, uh, I ran, I asked, it was when I first got into her, and I asked my professor what he thought about her. I, I still consider his opinion um, in high regard, but he said, well... She's she's an interesting figure, you know. She she fucked Alan Greenspan, and he fucked the economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was all. That was all he had to say about Unran. And I, <laughs> yeah, no, she she had many. If she hadn't become so involved in economics, it was weird. She she almost was like a nineteenth century philosopher, and her involvement with economics kind of was what was. It distorts some of the ability of the public, myself included, to assess kind of her work in a way that is objective, no pun intended. But, but uh, no, I mean, a lot of the stuff that she says about personal freedom and the way that society is set up and everything else, I mean, that, it could have come straight from Nietzsche. Right, Par- parasites in society, like resentment, like uh, resentment. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, her thing though was she really epitomized like the neoliberal mentality when she said like she she took it as far as to say love. Like no one deserves to be loved. No one deserves love. You earn like yeah. you, love is a value, or you you yeah. you are valuable to someone and. To that extent, they love you, like in a very monetary, weird sense. And I was like, "Oh man!" Well, like, that's just—you would imagine that some of that comes from. And we're running into this today, like a lot of the people who would criticize Unrand exclusively on those grounds. We're running into people today where they're making similar uh, criticisms, almost about love. And right. one could argue that in each case. The majority of the people doing this are childless, because mm. because again, I I think that that's uh, I, I they do seem to be they seem to be childless, and as people much smarter than myself have pointed out on a number of occasions, uh, and I don't think this observation is necessarily original to her, but she's one of the more prominent people 
in sort of the dissident space, be that left or right, who's speaking about these things at the moment. Anna Hachian pointed out, even before she recently- Anna of Red Scare. Yeah, Anna of, of Red Scare, uh, yeah. Listeners know her as. Yes, Anna of Red Scare, she, she pointed out, and this was before she even, she recently had a child, and before the child was even born or she was pregnant, she pointed out basically that- a man may be able to fall in love with a, another man or another woman in a certain way where there is this attachment that is very profound and that women clearly can fall in love with other women or other men, but the only true sense of love that they will know that is an unconditional love is through having a child. I mean, the, the overwhelming right. biological urge of this. And so for uh, to extrapolate off of this point and bring it back around to the Ayn Rand conversation and much of the pundit class conversation that throw around these similar critiques that Rand had, Rand had today, but they're dressed up differently because they don't want to be associated with her, though they do agree with that part of her philosophy, you know, albeit from them ever to mention it out loud, is that they, they haven't had children. Right, their their ability to understand that specific type of unconditional attached love, and as Anna pointed out, and has now since she's had a child, and though she very much loves her partner, I'm sure, um, just that notion that you could love somebody in that way. I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of years of biology just in the human species. That you're talking about involved. the love for the child, the, the love for the child, yeah, like yeah, 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 a woman loving. So that to, for somebody to feel. For someone specifically female to feel that love is transactional in that way until they have a child, yeah. it would be very easy for them to believe that love is transactional because yeah. the foremost way that women would feel that is through having a child. Right. We, in you know, in honor of Bastille Day that we tried to record on last week, we, we went back and um, learned the word yes in French for all of you. We. <laughs> we. <laughs> Uh, no, we went back and watched the Concert de Paris, which is an annual concert they put on in front of the Eiffel Tower on Bastille Day. Now, you might be thinking, if you've never never heard of this before and you're an American, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, they probably had, like, Bono and, like, you know, Bonnie Vare and, like, some cool bands. No, they fucking did not. Nope. What the French put on was classical music, much of it from French composers, some of it from American composers. Yeah. Some of it from, well, the Russian composers were practically French composers at the time. Yeah, that's where they kind of cut their teeth or who they learned from. But they, like John, I think it was John Adams, like Short Trip and a Fast Machine was in there. Right. That was like in the first 40 minutes, which I was kind of surprised because I speak absolutely. It was very, I was, it was like, very good. Because I, I speak no, I speak no French. So one of the best parts, if you watch this on YouTube, if you do not speak French, is mm -hmm. that there are interludes between the segments that are done by a series of presenters and you'll be getting, you know, silky French and all of a sudden it will be like Grace Jones will pop out at you, but then Grace <laughs> Jones won't pop up and you'll be like, nous présentons ce soir, John Adams. Yeah, exactly. Like and, that, exactly. Yeah. And then they will say, yeah. And then they'll be like, short trip in a fast machine. And then like, <laughs> and then it'll go back to French. But, but, it, it, but then he also is like, uh, we in petit voyage dans une, dans une machine très vite. It's French. <laughs> like, it's very French. He refuses to simply lean on. Oh, no, I mean, no. part of it is a courtesy, obviously, for people who don't speak English because the French pretend that, like, I don't know. They they don't speak English. They, this is the problem with the yeah, French. They, they don't. They, they refuse. They refuse, and they refuse to speak any other language. Let's mm -hmm. be real. They And this is why Americans think they're so rude when they go to France 
It's because the French, they know they're living in, a, like in Paris. Yep. You work in a cafe. You know you're working in a tourist hub. You know most of the people sitting down are tourists. But you haven't taken the fucking time and effort to learn any other languages. Yes. And so when people speak to you in English and you have to respond to them in broken English, it's embarrassing mm-hmm. and it's humiliating. And they just get a little chip on their shoulders. They, indeed, they That's do. That's it. That's it. Well, because it's the funny thing to me is not that they refuse to speak English. I can think of many countries, this one included, where a lot of people refuse to learn. Like at this point in America, if you don't know a bit of Spanish, I mean, sure. I hope that you're over 70. <laughs> I hope. I hope you're over 70 if you don't know a bit. And, and I know several 70-year-olds that have learned a bit of Spanish right. because of kind of they had to. And and that doesn't really – some people might say that it's offensive, this and that, and that, and that's a longer conversation. But in general, that doesn't bother me as much because it's like those are our neighbors. Like French right. people, as an example, French people – and this is what I find to be funny. They don't want to speak any other language, but like they understand many languages. Like they understand a fair amount of languages. They they have They'll, to. They, they, yeah. they Not to say that they're fluent, let alone they're not they're not fluent. They may not be conversant, but their ability to understand what is being said, on average for most French people, is pretty high because their neighbors are you know, obviously with Belgium, you do have people who speak French as well. Sure. But then everyone else who touches them is near them and everyone who touches them has been a major superpower. Like at some right. point in history. So like they're gonna and also there's romance languages. So you But can, it's interesting because the French yeah. have managed to bleed their language into other all of those countries. Because they conquered them and occupied them for a while and so well, like their you know Switzerland, half of Switzerland speaks mm-hmm. French, half of Belgium speaks French. Still got some Flemish people in there for some reason. Yeah. You've got the people along the Pyrenees that, well, yeah. the Pyrenees kind of served as a, as a natural, border, border, natural border, so the Spaniards didn't have to. Yeah. But but, they, but it's, a, it's a romance language, so they can parse out a fair amount they, yeah, of they Italian can, or, or yeah. Spanish. It's not, it's not as easy as like a Spaniard and an Italian understanding one another, which is incredibly easy for the most part. Like, yeah. I've lived in several places where Italians and Spaniards just started hanging out one, with one another in English-speaking countries, and within two weeks, they basically put together a pigeon, right, and right. they can understand what the other group... It's just like training their ear, yeah. and then there's a few words that stick out specifically from Spanish into Italian because of the Arabic influence, but they figure it out quickly. The French can kind of do that as well, but to me, what's funny is that like, they don't want... For the reasons that... Uh, Johnny just laid out like they they don't want to speak any other language in their own and it's no, kind of understandable it's and it's a good it's a great language but there's this thing that comes along with it where they also pretend to not understand you when it's like you probably the average french person generalization obviously but whatever like the average french person is going to understand more of the foreign languages that surround them than kind of almost anybody else right. because they're because they're surrounded by other people who speak Latin languages and other people who speak Germanic languages, you and they are f- both. And they're both. They're you know the Franks are La- the Franks are Latinized Germans. I mean right. that's what they were and what they are. And so like they, it, well it's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so you brought up the Franks. Yeah, you brought up the Franks. What I found interesting about this Concert de Paris is you could not imagine something like this taking place in America. It's today. the first thing that struck me. Yeah. You can't. A, a country saying, hey, guess what, motherfuckers? It's our Independence Day. We're going to play the great 
music, the greatest hits of our entire history. Yeah. Man, well, look, maybe that's being a bit hyperbolic, but, you know, we had just come off of the 4th of July where the highest public officials were saying, you know, on this 4th of July, we need to remember all the oppressed yeah. and those who were done wrong by our great nation. And you're like, well, this is the one day we don't do that. Is, is, is it not? Is it no? Isn't this the one day we remember that we were once oppressed and that we broke free from that? But and you, you know, people will say, well, yeah, but the Europeans came in here and <sighs> murdered these indigenous people and enslaved the blacks and such. Yet, yeah, well, you know, the Celts were the indigenous people of France. Yeah, they got invaded by the Romans, conquered. They got invaded by the Franks, conquered. Yeah. And that's how we have this lush, interesting culture. They lived in literal slavery, serfdom, yeah. for upwards of a thousand years. Yes. And then, only then, did they start building their beautiful yeah. monuments to when, art and literature that we know today. And, and they don't hold it against, like, the descendants of the Italians because when Caesar came, right. when Caesar came into they hold the Italians in very low esteem, esteem but they but don't yeah but it's when, not because of Caesar no when Caesar came into France which he did partially against orders of the Senate and the government at the time at a certain point they reversed course because he was successful but <laughs> something on the order of three to six million people uh, were directly killed or indirectly killed by his actions. That involves famine, uh, disease, things that happen as a right. indirect consequence of warfare. Terrence McKenna once had the best quote about Rome that I've ever heard, and it's something to keep in mind in general because of sort of as Rome is a foundation of Western civilization, much in the way that you could say that certain ethnic groups in the history of China basically are the foundation of that civilization, right? Because there have been multiple ethnic groups that have risen and fallen and the resentments and whatnot, but they understand this is a part of their history and this is how it went. It wasn't a good thing. They have a have a grown-up attitude about it. Right. Which is not to say, but... but it's not to say they delete it from their... No, no it's, it's not to say, but McKenna uh, had one of the best quotes I've ever heard about the Roman Empire. He goes, the Roman Empire was... Uh, what does he, he say? He goes, uh, the Roman Empire was a bargain basement built on top of three floors of human cruelty, <laughs> right? So, so I think what he meant by that was that they, they did have cultural contributions, but they got a hell of a lot of their cultural contributions from other people. So hence the bargain basement, sure. like the Filene's basement argument. They were is, kind yeah. of a, they, they were much like America is. They mm -hmm. were a, a, an assimilator of other cultures, other cultures yeah. that yeah. in turn... They exported. They exported to their yeah, and across they, their empire, right? And they and they added things to it. I mean, primarily in terms of Roman influence, a lot of what they did was an adaptation of uh, the cultures that came before them. Obviously, the Greeks, and then them rubbing shoulders with the Persians as foes for a very very long time, and then the Carthaginians and the Phoenicians and all these other people. But well, let's let's not get into musical modes here. Yeah. Um, the I, I I really enjoyed this concert for the yes. most part. Yeah, for the most part, the finale was very disappointing. They had yeah, you know they had a um, a piece by Ravel that was the Daphne and Chloe. They had one of the greatest baritones in the world right now, Edwin Crossley Nelser. Yeah, he's great. Shout out, he's a very good conversation too. 
Um, name dropping. Yes, I drove him to Nashville once. <laughs> uh, the pia- p- piano player, the uh, the guy that played the Tchaikovsky yes. piano concerto number two, mm-hmm. uh, Alexandre Cant- Cantoreau. Y'all want to go check him out if you can figure out how to spell that, mm-hmm. if you can even spell Tchaikovsky. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous little guy, 24 years old. Wow. I didn't know he was that young. Right. Just slaying the fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get to La Marseillaise. Yeah. The French national anthem, which is a song of blood and gore and conquering and warfare. And it was arranged by some Lebanese composer, Lebanese trumpet player, who gave it this milk toasty jazz fusion rendition. It was really path- and they had a children's choir singing it. Yeah, it was it was a very odd arrangement and I, and I would not have expected such an odd arrangement from a Lebanese musician. They, it's like normally they don't fall into that category. It's very weird. Well, this is interesting because I had a uh, English. I, he was never my English professor, but he was a English professor mm-hmm. at MTSU. He was Persian, mm-hmm. very old man, and I came to him one day because I had just started reading Cahil Gibran again, yeah. our, our nation, our, our Lebanese people's great poet laureate. And I said, what do you think about Cahil Gibran? And he was like, Jonathan, you know these, you know these figurines. <laughs> you know these figurines called precious moments. Cahil Gibran is precious moments of Arabic literature. <laughs> And I disagree with him. I I can see what he was saying. Disagree with him, but I can see what he was saying. And this, as soon as I found out this guy was Lebanese, I was like, well, there you go. He turned La Marseillaise into a fucking Precious Moments piece. See, I kind of see that. But then again, when you're like a Persian music professor saying that, it's just like, number one, it's like, okay, we get it. Everything the Persians do has to be fucking Rococo. You have some tabla, (laughs) you have some tabla player who's like an ace mathematician who also, he's like, I can play on all these fucking scales. And of course it's amazing. (laughs) But do you count on Persian people not to be fucking, okay. If they want to make the accusation towards Lebanese people that they can have like, you know, they're too sentimental, they're too sentimental. And that they're basically churn out Hummel figurines. (laughs) And I would, I would say to the Persians then, I would be like, yeah, and you're also gaudy. Like, if you want right. to be that way, like, you're known going way fucking back thousands of years. You haven't been gaudy since Zoroaster came off that fucking mountain and started <laughs> telling people to act like civilized human beings. Right. And you're like, oh, this is a great idea. And that took a while to stick, by the way. I should have said, well, yeah. you, know, you know this show Jersey Shore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's Persia. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Persia. Persia. Like yeah, it's just like it's that that tension between say Persians and the Lebanese. Also because kind of Persians understand intrinsically that like Lebanon and Syria have been very very cosmopolitan, and they were before the Persian Empire, and that it was one of the most important things that the Persians ever did was taking over those areas because it gave them like cultural legitimacy. Right. But it's I mean in in the sense with music though to come back around. 
that's one of the things is that the national anthem being what it is and being like straightforward, even if the music professor wanted to make that argument, you just think that he nailed it because it's not, I mean, it's a beautiful piece. And like you said, it's blood and guts and it's As got all this Berlioz power. Arranged it. Exactly. As Berlioz wrote it, yeah. it was. It is. It was like, a great piece. It's very fuerte. Like it's, it's, it's like it's, a strong song. That's what you want an anthem to be. Right. You know, it's not like the kind of, Thousand yard stare that you get with God save the queen, <laughs> like right, like <laughs> like because if someone isn't take them down a notch, yeah, if someone isn't belting out God save the queen, like if it's not being sung with great force, if it's just being played, there's a kind of opium quality to oh, yeah. that song. Oh yeah, where it's I love like, uh, it because it's it's yeah. a very slow plodding, yeah, trance like thing. When I will play it, yeah, the 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 American words are running through my head while I'm playing it. But yeah, it's you know my country tis of thee I guess yeah, but it's it's not it's a, it's a song I can play in church yeah. on the organ. Oh, it's it's a deeply kind of like wooden pew Protestant. I played La Marseillaise on the organ once on Bastille Day. Not gonna do it again. It's not appropriate church music. No, it's not. Um, it, yeah, the. Yeah, it but I I and I I found it odd to see a children's choir. Yeah, who singing a song about pres- murder basically. Right. I mean, presumably they all speak French fluently. So it's not even like they're yeah. singing words that they're they, they that don't aren't know. connecting no. with them. They're literally saying may the impure blood of our enemies spill in our fields and water our our crops. Yeah, which is a nice little I mean, <laughs> like, if, if there if there is some kind of like Tradcath integralist movement that is secretly building up like power centers in France as a reaction to everything that's happening there. Oh, you can bet that they rubber stamp the idea of having children <laughs> sing a song about like we're not going to take it anymore. Right, because that's really kind of the vibe that you get is like we're going to have children sing about how like you know they must yeah. be crushed. Yeah, yeah. They well, they're, they're, I looked up an article on this this big uh, protest movement going on in France right now, which we can get to. The reporter that went to the protests that are they're protesting the lockdowns and the uh, bless you uh, Macron's what COVID passport. COVID passport yeah mandatory I mean mandatory vaccines COVID yeah. passports new lockdowns coming potentially. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people went out in the streets about this from the far left and the far right. Yeah. And the journalist that went out there said she was talking to a, a young royalist who is demanding the return of God and the king. Oh, man. <laughs> I, can, I can say this as a quick sidebar. Like 24 years old. Yeah, as, as a quick sidebar, uh, having... One of the one of the most fun conversations as an American that you can and ever will have uh, is with a and normally if you're in continental Europe it's French people it's really not anyone else I mean there's a few people here and there but like certain French people and certain I wouldn't even say British just English people you will run into people who are not even monarchists because it doesn't quite make sense as a term in the UK, but they are royalists and they want an absolute monarchy to return. And it is as an American, number one, it will, if you, if you are a 
Philistine, it will revile you. But if you have nothing involved and you're just taking it as it is and you're listening to someone and you engage the person, number one, what you'll find with a hell of a lot of people who are royalists is that they're highly intelligent. They're very smart. Very much so. They're very, very smart. And you're going to think- Very that, historically yeah, um, astute. Very Yes, very much so. And you will have conversations with them and people around you who will find it to be a despicable or silly idea will try and make fun of them and you will watch. If you just sit back and watch most of the time with these royalists, you will see them uh, hurt the feelings and thoughts of the people that are kind of trying to mock them because they'll start to make a series of arguments specifically in a, in a neoliberal globalized world right. that rip these people apart. And they're also screamingly funny for the most part. I can remember there was one point where I was at a dinner with a guy and this was in the UK and he was he was highly intelligent, very Douglas Murray-esque character. Yeah. And he uh, he basically started making arguments for like the royalists and and basically an absolute monarchy and uh, different people started to question him and one of the first things that came out of his mouth now there's got to be an equivalent of this in France right the, mm -hmm. in the UK he was like well um, I don't even consider because someone was like well what do you think about like the current royal family he's like that's not the actual royal family they're like inbred Germans the Habsburgs are like stupid like, they can't <laughs> do anything they're useless fucking people they're deeply inbred fools who don't belong here they have nothing to do with this they're like the first signs of the neoliberal globalist world that most right. of you leftists around this table bemoan constantly and right. endlessly, endlessly it's been going on for a while yeah and then and then he would change tack and he'd go and most of you that are here that are on the right whether, uh, you know, out loud or secretly, like, and you have these theories about, like, the Rothschilds controlling everything and, like, some Zionist Jewish movement. It's like, who do you think that this family is aligned with? Even as you sit here and talk to me about how, like, oh, well, having the royal family as a symbol is great. Because these people are not the royals. They're fools. They're clowns. They're a disgrace. And what we need is the return of the Stuart monarchy. And those people are out here. We know who they are. We know that they exist. Some of them are still aristocrats. They are the rightful kings of Albion. On, they should be put back on the <laughs> throne. Like it's, I mean, if you really, it gets into Game of Thrones territory yeah, pretty I, quick. I, I, I say this because as as I say that as someone who's never watched Game of Thrones, yeah, but but it's it, I say this because if speaking of the concert that we're discussing and then royalists and kind of these sentiments that are popping up, increasingly popping up in Europe. And even if you're looking at people on the, one of the people on the uh, dissident right, alt right, uh, far right, that is an American who makes this argument is uh, Curtis Yarvin, very big figure in tech over on the uh, old left coast. And he's, he himself is a monarchist and he's highly intelligent. God. He goes by the name Mencius Mold. Bug, Mencius Moldbug, and that was that's his right. handle for the longest time. He runs a website called Gray Mirror. I bring this up. Does to he say, arrange hymns for uh, no, no organ? Because no, he sounds like one of these. No, no, no. He's creatures. he's uh, he he himself, and this is another thing that people would not expect. He is uh, Jewish or half Jewish. And his family were diplomats in the U.S. And he came from like a left-wing family. He's Moldbug, he may repulse you, but he's a very interesting figure if you start looking into him in the fact that there are an increasing number of American monarchists. There's an increasing number of monarchists in the West in general because of all the disarray that is happening. So to right. see the song, for instance, like to have the children sing that song. Right. On Bastille Day, right before the current president, basically 
does a totalitarian, <laughs> does <laughs> right, a totalitarian. Right, it's right. like you all, excuse me, you all have to have this happen. This is now mandatory. This is what we're all doing. And Get on board. Get on board. I mean, it was an exceptionally tone-deaf move during an, ex, an extremely volatile moment in world history. Right. I mean, it's... And right after a very symbolic festival of freedom. Yeah, where the government was overthrown through force. Literally decapitated. Yeah, and the fact that less than three, three, four months ago, a series of generals who were very high-ranking in France basically said, came out and released a press statement. And these are some of these, I think they're all retired except for maybe one or two, or they, but they were like national figures. They said that if you don't get your shit in order, we will have to do something. And coming God. from America, that sounds kind of crazy because we're like, oh, yeah, that's just crazy talk and far-right stuff. You have to remember that France actually has a armed force within their remit. It's called the French Foreign Legion, and the mm-hmm. French Foreign Legion exists to take care of problems in other colonies, but also one of the things that it kind of exists for is for the exact situation that we're talking about. And the French Foreign Legion... Um, to, to stage a military coup. To stage a military coup, <laughs> to stop the government if it gets out of control. And the French Foreign Legion is one of the most no-bullshit military units on the face of the earth. Like, if you're listening to this and you are under 35 years old and you do not have serious health problems and you decide that you want to join the French Foreign Legion, you can. Even if you have certain types of criminal records, certain things <laughs> exclude you, but other ones, you have to go there, you have to live and have all these restrictions it's and like everything It's like the Freemasons else. with guns. Yeah. No, and it's extremely grueling. I mean, so if a bunch of generals that are well-respected within the military establishment, that only that not only means that there are people still currently in the military that might follow them if they make the decision to take the country over, it means that there's already a pre-existing military unit that if it is activated in the proper way, m- may join forces with them, and they're some of the baddest operators on the face of the earth. So well, what's, in, yeah. what, what's interesting now is that Europe has been, quote-unquote, unified. Yeah as practically its own country. Now, I don't know if the European Union has its own armed forces. Uh, kind of. Um, but you could imagine if something like that was mobilized against, <clears throat> because, again, Macron, the president, represents the European Union yeah. order. He represents the global order. He represents the technocrats. Yes, the very much so. <laughs> big money. If the the nationalist wing struck out at the executive that the, what he called technocrat that was put in charge of, to manage France right under this larger umbrella, would the larger larger umbrella not try to close around France? You would you would presume that there would be something like that, and in. Coming up towards the presidential election, I mean, it's going to be a crucial moment in world history about how that, I feel anyway, how that presidential election goes. Because, in France? Yeah, in France. Yeah. Because uh, I would say that Marine Le Pen has more uh, support now than she's ever had. She, it was flagging for a while because of the last disastrous election and how she kind of blew it. Yeah. However, at this point, people are much more likely to 
I think the people of France are a little more tolerant of some casual racism. Yes. If it means that they get to open their fucking restaurants and don't have to carry a vaccine passport around, and maybe we can get our border situation under control. Yes. I mean, and this is something that people forget um, or they don't know, and it's one of those little historical factoids that can shed a whole lot of light on a situation. It would probably appear to the majority of people who weren't acquainted with the history of the Crusades, that if there was a nation that, um, let's say, fundamentalists in the Islamic world hated more than any other, it might be Britain or possibly because of the Vatican, like Italy, Rome, that general area, maybe Spain because of the fact that, you know, Islam used to pretty much control Spain. But really and truly, going back to the Crusades, when Arabs would refer to Europeans in general, and it was mostly in a derogatory way, you could say that the word itself is derogatory, and this extends all the way down to really Ethiopia, uh, which is not an exclusively, I mean, it's probably, you know, with examples of other than like indigenous religions, you know, it's like 50-50 almost Christian Muslim, but they refer to Europeans as Frangi, which basically is Frank, yeah. Franks. When they would talk about Europeans, right, and when they would talk about Europeans, and they would, and they would slag them off. To this day, in a lot of places, they call European Frangi. They call them Franks or Frangi. I, I, I'm well, I mean, look where they're. You know, yeah. I mean, I know they're they're doing their terrorisms all over the place, but when they pop up in Europe, they're hitting Paris. They're hitting Paris. They're hitting Paris. <clears throat> They're hitting. And Paris. I mean, you could argue that they yeah. hate America more than France now. Maybe. Yeah. It's easier to get to France. It's easier to get to France. Yeah. Um, you got to fly a plane to get to the United States. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> Never forget. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. I mean, a really good primer. If you're if you're really interested, kind of in a history of. The very long relationship between Europe, uh, post-Roman Empire, and um, the Islamic world, with an emphasis on the Arab world, then I would say, actually by a Lebanese author, uh, one of the great Lebanese authors, Amin Malouf. Amin Malouf wrote a book. One, it's a history. That's and it's interesting. Very, That's the same last name as the... Uh Trumpet player. It's, a trumpet player. it's entirely lead. possible. They're, they're a very well-to-do family. If he was somehow connected, it yeah, wouldn't surprise Malouf. me at all. Yeah, Amin Malouf <clears throat> wrote a book. He was a... I think that he, he wrote fiction. He wrote uh, poetry. I think he wrote plays, and he wrote nonfiction. He wrote a history that was called um, The History of the Crusades Through Arab Eyes, and it very much uh, focuses on like the fact that Basically, one of the things that he gets into, and being Lebanese and living in Lebanon and being educated in France, he he gets into the fact that the the Arab world itself and the Muslim world that they have a specific dislike for the French because they the French were if the French hadn't participated in the Crusades, then they couldn't have gone on as long as they did because the French were that they they smashed and they destroyed. I mean, they were the most fierce warriors, and that goes back to when. Uh, well, that's where we get our word from cru- for crusade. Yeah, is from the French quasad. Quasad, like yeah, and and the fact that and yes, after, he is he is the nephew. He's the nephew of, of Amin of Malouf. Amin Malouf. And the uh, there's also the older historical point, which is one of the only serious defeats for a very long time that the 
Muslims ever suffered in their and attempted conquests of places was uh, they they clearly took Spain, but they were trying to take um, Vienna. They were trying to take France. Ah. And they were trying to take France, and this would have been about in the 700s to the 800s, and it was stopped by a single man whose name was Charles Martel or Charles the Hammer. Uh-huh. Charles the Hammer beat every single odd imaginable to drive Muslims out of France and keep them from invading, and hence his name, he crushed them. And a lot of people don't know who Charles the Hammer is, but one way that you will know him is that he is the father of Charlemagne, who pretty much unified, he was the first person to create some kind of unification in Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. So Charlemagne is an exceptionally important figure. He couldn't have done anything that he did if his father hadn't stopped, as a Frenchman, had not stopped basically those invasions into what we now know as France. You will also know him as the father of Pippin. Pippin. The star of the Broadway musical. (laughs) Yes. Uh, which has some of the gayest music that has ever been written. Yeah. Um, so let's let's get back to this massive protest here on the heels of. I mean, I, I noticed while the uh, I think it was the Tchaikovsky piece was being played on the piano. You had these big aerial shots from helicopters or drones yeah. of the city. And while this guy was playing, there was a police car racing in the background with his blue lights on. And I was just like, ah, well, there's, there's Macron's biopolitical uh, <laughs> fucking draconian <laughs> hellscape in action. They're going to right. fucking find somebody that ordered a cafe creme at the wrong cafe <laughs> without a fucking vaccine card, and they're going to pick him up. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of people trying to escape this hellhole. Yes. Namely, the billionaire class. Yeah. Uh, Richard Branson made a lot of very discombobulated news this week for touching outer space with his little spacecraft. Uh, he didn't do anything that's never been done before, so no. I don't know why we're all getting so excited about it. But a lot of people are upset. <clears throat> A lot of people are upset because they're wondering why, you know, at a period where Blackstone is buying up all the homes in America and trying to force us to be all renters for the rest of our lives, while small businesses are shuttering all around the country, why are these billionaires trying to start selling space vacation rides to I mean, other billionaires. Yeah. To other billion. It's This isn't like, you know, if you're in your early 20s and you're thinking, oh, man, by the time I'm 35, I'll be able to go fly up to the, the fucking stratosphere. No, you will not. No, you will not. Not unless you make, what, eight figures? Yeah. Nine figures? Yeah, it's it's not going to happen. I think that people are looking at this in slightly a skewed way. They're, they're asking questions to which they don't want to accept the obvious answers. Because they're like, why are these billionaires going into space and, and when everyone needs these things, why won't they put their money to like solve these problems and everything else? It's like, hey, have you ever considered that they are putting their money to solve these problems? And that unfortunately for you and me and Joe Average, it's just not the solution that you want. 
Like they're not spending their money to fix these things because they're yeah, they're spending, not terraforming the Sahara. No, they're 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 terraforming another planet. They're they're spending their money behind the scenes to actually get some of the outcomes that are currently happening. Like they don't want certain problems to be fixed. They want things to exacerbate and to accelerate to a certain point because it's it goes back into certain notions of they they're doing fundamental arithmetic. They're like drilling down the first principles and they do understand that the world is is in bad shape environmentally. I mean whether that case has been exacerbated by certain people in terms of the time scale in which it's happening, but they, they understand that this stuff is all bad. But when they get down to the root causes, it's like, well, what causes pollution? What causes environmental degradation? And people start listing things off like, oh, fossil fuels and, you know, uh, food production in certain ways on an industrial scale, strip mining, energy all these things. Consumption. Energy consumption is what it all boils down to. Like you, you, you strip past everything else, you get down, you have ener- energy consumption. But if you go one, level below that is like what creates this much energy consumption. It's human beings. Right. Like if you want to solve the environmental problem, I think that it, it, again, in 1900, there was something like between a billion and 3 billion people, a billion and a half people. And now there's like almost 8 billion people. Mm -hmm. And this has been achieved in the space of 120 years, you know, not even a century and a quarter. They, they, which was made possible by the very things that are, yeah, polluting our globe, the industrial revolution, revolution, exactly. The globalization itself, which globalization. means you could go other places and just strip up minerals or specific things that you need out of the soil to manufacture the goods that you're making, but you always needed more energy for that. Right. Like it's it's an energy problem, but I mean, I think that if you were to solve the energy problem, then the then you would have an even larger exponential growth. In human right. beings, it would create a big problem. These are people who've considered these problems. It's not jejun to talk about them, so they don't. It's not going to help them out at all. No. They, they yeah. <laughs> no. It, it isn't. No one wants to hear that kind of talk from very people. I mean, could you people. imagine Richard Branson coming out and, no. well, yeah, like, it's like, you got to either, we got to get off the planet or we got to have mass murder. Yeah. We got to kill all the people. Or we go to space, and you're invited. Yeah. You have a chance to win a trip to space with me, Richard Bronson. Right. Like, (laughs) no, I mean, imagine that PR campaign. As far as I can tell, what part of this boils down to, because it's other than having people like Elon, who he, I believe he genuinely does for all his weirdness. He does want to go to Mars. He wants to terraform it. I think that there, I can get into that, but I think there are ulterior motives of why he wants to do that, which I think some of them are actually quite smart, though it's an extremely dangerous proposition to do what he wants to do on a level of survivability for human beings and whatnot. I, I, we might circle back to that, but... Well, I mean, I, I, just just to say... I don't. I don't think we're going to see Mars starting to be terraformed before we die. Maybe we will. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah maybe. If we do, if we start seeing colonies being built on Mars, you can bet there's going to be some very horrific news articles about some very horrific disasters going wrong on those co- with those colonies. Yes, there will be. And also, I mean, and I'll I'll say this, and then I'll come right back to this point. I believe what you're seeing with all this space talk, and some of it, I believe, is how Elon was able to get the support that he's gotten from certain crucial, powerful people, certain infrastructure people that are very powerful, probably the most 
infrastructure people tend to be the most powerful people on earth, people running large infrastructures. Those are the, the people when you're talking about shadowy arrangements, covens, cabals, whatever you want to say, yeah. you know, whichever one of those words offends you the least. These, these are the people that are running things. And um, in the sense that he got some backing from these people because he was talking about going to space, but they're not really interested in going to Mars. And they probably thought that with Elon, this was a great front to be like, good, this will get the public on board where they won't complain too much. What they're actually interested in doing, so far as I can tell, is something akin to the uh, <laughs> hit Jodie Foster vehicle, Elysium. I say that <laughs> ironically because uh, Jodie Foster's in it, but it's not a Jodie Foster vehicle. It'd be funny if it was built that way when it was came out, though. But they wanted to build... Um, it's much easier for them to build um, biosphere-type... Biosphere-2-type habitats. Here on Earth? Orbi- no, in the orbit of the Earth. Oh. Have you ever seen the film Elysium? No. It's by the same uh, guy who did uh, District 9. South African okay. director. Okay. And the film is also set in South Africa, which perfectly brings into the moment. Like it, it makes it, it even, it's made what made it jump into my mind the other day thinking about it was that uh, the earth has basically become an overcrowded shithole and that many of the elites have decided to build um, massive space stations, like rotating disks almost that are in space that have their own Right, like in 2001. Yeah, exactly. And they're massive. And, the, and it's where all of the elites essentially live and they have people ferry them the products that they need from Earth. So they basically turn Earth into an open pit mine Gross. and everyone who's living on it is living in slums. I mean, most of this is shot in some of the uh, largest slums in Johannesburg and Cape Town when it's uh-huh. got the on-earth scenes. Matt Damon actually stars. He does a really good job. But I know what I'm watching tonight. Yeah, oh, yeah. At least if, and it has a mech suit sword fight, which is great. People, Some people rag on me for liking that movie. I'm like, no, this is exactly what I want. It's thought-provoking. It's actually become more relevant as time has gone on. And I do believe that... This space talk is a way to get people used to the fact that rich people are just going to take rides into space. And from there, it will unspool to the point where they start building things in space and they potentially will live there because they do. I mean, do my, I I get, I totally get that and agree with you. I, I'm wondering how the, how the picked forks don't come before the bio, they're mech, mech suits of yeah, sorts. Yeah. Well, like, I, I don't... You, you just, you use the current atmosphere of panic to push it forward. So basically what you say is, okay, and this is just an example. We're going we're gonna to put on our tenfold hats for a moment. Mine's right here. Basically, yeah. What you, what you basically say is you're like, well, Earth has become a viral hotbed. And we don't have a sterile environment where we can basically try and work on certain things, right? Even if it's just for scientists. Right. So they're not exposed to these things. We have to get our smartest people out of here because if they die, we can never cure this problem here. You use certain states of emergency to make sure, and the virus is much easier than a war because it's like, why do you get to get away from a war, smart guy? Like, you're part of the reason it happened. Yeah. But if you tell everyone- You well, can't get away <clears throat> from a virus. You can't. So you basically say that, like, well, we have to take these people, like- into space or into a sterile, safe environment so that they can work on all of the wizardry, all of the magic, they go up to Mount Olympus and they stay there. Right. And they work on these things and it will help you out. Like this but again, is, I don't see that happening before the pitchforks. No, the pitchforks will happen. And I then, don't. I mean, I mean, I don't... Well, well, this is the problem is that these people 
they're looking at it this way because they believe that they can manage every single situation. They believe in the notion of True. well, yeah, because they're infrastructure people. They're infrastructure. They're people. not creative people. They're not no. They're not really. I mean, you could argue argue that Richard Branson is like an iconoclastic thinker. Yeah. I don't really think so. I think he's an iconoclastic investor. Yeah, well, he he's ha- not. A, he's not the guy that's like, let's do some crazy shit. His last craziest shit we did back in 1963. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, like I mean, it's it's reached the point. It's been a while since Sputnik. Yeah, it's it's been a while since Sputnik. <laughs> I mean, the the space shuttle itself was. God bless that dog. Yeah, exactly. The space shuttle itself was very interesting because you had a reusable space vehicle. I mean, that was a step. But the fact that you couldn't, you can't. It was land, a step, but I mean, the, yeah, getting into space was was the, the, step. Was the main step. Yeah, like yeah. That, that the the space shuttle was like an intermediary that was never picked up on afterwards. We haven't done anything since the space shuttle. These people are right. going up and essentially space shuttles. Yeah. Or like, you know, those supersonic blackbirds that you've seen the X-Men use, like planes like that. That's what they're going into space as. Something is a cross between that and, you know, Musk is now using reusable rockets. It's all very important. But these infrastructure people, I mean... What you have to keep in mind in a situation like this is the, the phrase that you must keep like a diamond in your mind to understand everything that's going on is many of the most powerful people in the world, or I should say their flunky class, which would be the people who were involved in finance, okay? And these are the, <laughs> the flunky class of the infrastructure people who actually rule the world, right? Right. They they are the investment class. And there was a phrase that was bandied about a great deal before the 2008 collapse that happened in the housing market that devastated the financial markets of the world. And it was going on for a decade to uh, four or five years, somewhere in that range, before the collapse happened. And it was in the finance world, they, you had people, uh, Paul Krugmans and sorts like this, uh, who said that we have banished volatility in the markets. Right. The phrase you always have to keep in your mind whenever you see any of these shenanigans going on, like build back better, like vaccine passports, all this... The mantra of these the great people, reset. yeah. The the mantra of these people is banish volatility. They they want to to take a phrase from the Bible, right? And this is what I think, maybe in the Book of Isaiah or something, where it God basically says He will make the high places low and the low places high, right? And Alan Watts pointed out at a certain point in his uh, career philosophy, he said that that would be a nightmare world. It would just be a flat expansive plane going on forever would be the most boring thing that you could ever fucking imagine. It's not a good idea. No, it's not. Like one- Now, 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 now. If you get the vast majority of the population hooked on antidepressants and psychotropic drugs- They're halfway there. You you get a lot of support for Mm -hmm. for a world like that. You do, yes. Um, But again, I don't think, you know, pending some massive evolutionary leap- which they're also working on. Yeah. You don't, I do not think you get a society that is interested in that kind of playing field. Yeah. You just have to keep the society distracted. I mean, for what you're trying to do in space. Right. Well, I mean, I just saw recently a friend of mine posted an article from CNN saying uh, immunocompromised people, it's they're, they're finding that immunocompromised people are not responding to the vaccine and might have to go back to pre vaccine lifestyle. And it's like, and she was posting it as like concerned because she's immunocompromised. And I was just like, 
How many times do you let them tell you, get in your house and stay there yeah. before you rip your hair out? Yeah. Now, I don't know, like, well, maybe if you're on some fucking Xanax or yeah. what Valium, maybe you can make that work. But oh, again, this is all of this goes back to like population levels. It's like people who don't want to, they don't, the, the people who are in charge of the infrastructure have a better chance than anyone else of potentially taking individual actions that really help alleviate, if not solve, many of the problems which we are currently facing. But a lot of this would also have to do with lifestyle choices that they don't want to make. They want you to not do certain things anymore, right. but they will continue to do them, and they will do them because they're your betters, and they need to move around at will, freely across the globe, and do whatever else that they do. Correct. This is what needs to happen. They need countries that are very poor. I mean, it goes back to yeah. the Al Gore yeah. the Al Gore situation when he released that film, yeah. the, the Inconvenient Truth. Truth yeah. And then, you know, the articles came out weeks later that he had his his home was spending using like twenty Massive times the amount of energy yeah. of a normal American household. His jet was yeah. blowing all this shit into the atmosphere. You, That's not the problem. The individual is not the problem. Al Gore is not the problem. The factories that run our electric grid are the main problem. Yeah, it's not even your fucking cars. No, like. It's, LA could cut down on their cars a little bit, but that's not even the fucking problem. Yeah, no, it's it's not the problem at all. I mean, it's it it is an energy problem. It's an energy acquisition problem that you could then tack onto the side of of like strip mining minerals out of the earth. I mean, when you're strip mining the floor of ocean for like selenium and things like that to put in cell phones, you're starting to get into a situation and that you you're not going to get rid of that technology. You're not going to allow that to happen. That technology is very useful if you're someone who is powerful, wants to run the world and is already an in infrastructure. It right, helps. But yeah. This is the thing how useful is it to the average citizen oh what the the technology the technology oh it's that, that they're buying on yeah. mass it's not useful for it's them. not useful at all it's actually detrimental to most people's mental health yeah it, it is but it's useful but people don't think that they they yeah. like the games yeah they like the instant yeah. instantaneous communication they like the news yeah they it's it's a real problem. Well, it's it's entertaining and in the best cases uh, informative for your average person to have. In the best cases, it's informative. Uh, it's, right. It's made to be primarily entertaining and addictive for your average person. But for people who run everything, it is useful. And it is useful because it allows them to track and monitor everyone. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't want to stop strip mining like they understand that if they continue to strip mine minerals in certain ways and increase energy consumption, that there's going to be increased environmental degradation. But they understand that if they scale those programs back and try and create a world where less of that technology is needed or it's uh, it's absorbed in a different way, like where not everyone is walking around. You're not going to get rid of computers, but where it's like, hey, we don't all have to walk around with computers in our pockets. Right. Right. They don't want that. No. That's, that's, and that's, why don't they yeah. want that? Let's like let's get down to the fucking the brass tacks of it. It's the money. They like yeah. the money. The money. Well, and the, the control. The money's coming in. Yeah. I mean, the control, I, I agree. The control aspect is there. I don't think Richard Branson is walking around going, God, I wish I could just make all these people do exactly what I want them to. I don't, he's retarded. Yeah. He likes the money. And if, if a government agency were to come to Richard Branson and say, hey, look, 
This is how your 400 or so companies are impacting the environment. This is what they're doing to people's mental health. Virgin Mobile, for example. Yeah. This is what they're doing. Like all the bad things they're doing, he would go, well, regulate me. Because I'm not going to fucking stop. I'm, I'm not going to quit. The money's money. too yeah. good. The money's too good. But it, again, in this in this infrastructure class, right, uh, there's a line from Apocalypse Now which situates Richard Branson in the hierarchy of, <laughs> of the uh, infrastructure class. Because Branson did some innovative things with pre-existing infrastructures, but he didn't actually create them. He didn't create an sure. infrastructure in the way that uh, Vanderbilt created the railroads, as we understand them, or Carnegie, the steel mills, or the Rothschilds, like banking, as we understand it now in international finance, or- Doesn't have to be yeah, Jews, just have to, happens it just, to. It just happens to be in that particular case. But there, these individuals who actually put infrastructures into place and have a massive amount of uh, power, like the Rockefellers being another one with some of the work that they did. Richard Branson falls into the line. There's a quote from where he fits in that hierarchy is a quote from Apocalypse Now, where Martin Sheen first goes to see um, Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. And he finds him, you know, towards the end. And he finds this mad, mad village deep in the jungle of Burma and this man like living, this, you know, his Colonel Kurtz life. And uh, one of the first conversations he has with Kurtz is uh, basically he says like, why are you here? And he tells him, you know, I was sent here to like come and get you. And, and Brando Kurtz like pauses and he goes, you think that you're a, a hit man. Like you're a hit man, but you're not. He goes... You're an errand boy sent by shopkeepers to collect a bill. That is a perfect description of Richard Branson. Richard Branson is an errand boy for people who are more powerful. Yes, he's more powerful than any of us ever will be, but essentially, right. ultimately, right? If Richard Branson, he can, he can cause some problems if he decides to shut down every one of the companies that he has. But if someone like Jeff Bezos who is the most recent of these infrastructure people who've been allowed into kind of this elite group of individuals. If Jeff Bezos makes his mind up to just shut down a bunch of his servers, well, let's put it this way. The CIA rents an incredible amount of (laughs) cloud space for their information from his servers, as I believe other intelligence agencies may as well, okay? That's how deeply, when, when I talk about this, the people deep into infrastructure, CIA information from satellite surveillance, from picked up calls, from extremely sensitive information is just floating around on his fucking servers. Jeff he, Bezos. Yeah. yeah, Jeff Bezos. And if, if Bezos decided to shut those down, he would get... Yeah, he would, he would be, armed guards. He, he would be imprisoned. He'd be imprisoned. It would he be would, it would be a matter of like security of state. This man yeah. is so deeply into the infrastructure of uh, the world and specifically the United States of America at this point that he, and our Western allies and our Western allies. If he decided to, if he just went nuts one day and decided to shut it all down, or he could somehow release a virus into his own system because he has access to everything that will bring it all down, and he did that, he'd get killed much quicker than John McAfee did. He would just be fucking, <laughs> right, he would right. be, he, I don't even think that he would see jail time. Like, he would vanish, he would vanish because they would have to uh, apprehend him and, and God, probably torture him to figure out, before they could figure out he'd gone mad, to be right. like, why did you do this? And, and figure out how to stop it. And figure out how to stop it, and then it, once that was done or it was uh, figured out that it couldn't be done, he would be killed. Like you just, he wouldn't be around anymore. He'd be gone. Yeah. 
So when you when you run into somebody like Branson and, and you look at these situations of like what they're doing getting into space, he is the errand boy. It's in it, it's in a weird way, Bezos is also getting into this. He's like, I'm gonna go into space, as he's gonna go into space with his brother. And they're going to shoot into space and do some weird shit. Shave each other's heads. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it, with Bezos, it gets a bit weirder as to why he's doing it. I think that because the fact that people he's more well insulated from public opinion, even though people are constantly like guillotining effigies of him and everything else, then the majority of these elites are because he people can use other online shopping, you know, outlets other than Amazon. But do we? Not really. Not really. No, you can't really. You, you can't. I mean, he's he's pretty much cornered now, the like at least the infrastructure. You may not be buying yeah. from Amazon.com, mm-hmm. but the way the goods, where the goods are stored, warehoused, yeah, the way they're getting to your front door, the way that you're buying them, the way that you're buying them, but that's the payment system as well the, as the interface. Right. Yeah, PayPal. Um, yeah, I mean he he's. I mean it's a good argument for Bitcoin. Yeah. To say like we need a blockchain type of situation, situation so that there can be competition. There can be yeah. you can break these monopolies. And what we're talking about is monopolies here. Yeah, we're talking about monopolies in the sense that not you know the reason people were worried about the monopolies of Standard Oil and uh, Carnegie and Vanderbilt, they weren't the government wouldn't have come in and busted up those monopolies if those monopolies did not present a problem for the government itself. Yep. They were more powerful than the government. Right. They were, where they were threatening to replace the power of the government with themselves. Yeah. This has already happened. Yeah. The, with the, Amazon, yeah. with, I mean, the servers, the... With Amazon, with Google, yeah. like increasingly with Facebook. I mean, the government basically changed tact at a certain point after World War II. And one of the only exceptions that I can think of where they uh, took a traditional approach with monopolies. And it was one of the last serious, it was probably the last super serious monopoly case that ended up with something being broken up in the United States of America. It was Bell Labs, Bell Communications mm-hmm. specifically, that were broken up because the, again, that was, they had a stranglehold on the telecommunication infrastructure in the United States of America. America and the government was like it was in the government's interests, not the people's interests. No, no, per no, no, se. no. I mean, it, it, I mean, tan- tangentially, were, yeah, right. it was in the people's interests. The, the, the people were happy, yeah, that they got busted but, up because they couldn't cut off their yeah. phone lines for saying the wrong thing, thing right? But, but now the government can. Now the government can. So the, basically, Bell. If if only the people had had a problem with Bell, it probably would have existed. It may still exist, but it would have existed for much longer. But the government had a problem with it, so it got broken up. And it would appear that the modern model is now you do not you do not shatter these entities anymore. You absorb them in a way where they become part of the government infrastructure. Right. Like we all saw the press conference that came out with Jen Psaki the other day where basically she said, and one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life right. as, as a human being, definitely as an American, where she was like, yeah, we'll tell Facebook who to like monitor. And if you get kicked off of one platform, you should be kicked off of all platforms. Right. That's just how it should work because it's right. misinformation. And literally half the fucking country is sitting there going, you know what? She has a point. She's got a point. Because this COVID misinformation is just so dangerous. Yeah, no, we, we live in an era of ding-dongs. People can't, 
people can't engage in thought experiments. Like this is the ding dong age. Like, let me tell you, like the, it is, the thought experiment is like, if you do this to this group of people, same thing that people were com- warning everyone about, about Alex Jones about three years ago. Like if you just right. deplatform this person, it doesn't stop here. If you allow it to start, it doesn't stop. It keeps going and going and going and going. And eventually it eats you as you know, the Soviet union was a perfect example of that. Like yeah. what the Bolsheviks did to pretty much everyone, but starting with the Mensheviks, which there actually were more Mensheviks than Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks. The names were ironic. Menshevik is little party. Bolshevik is big party. There were way more Mensheviks than there were Bolsheviks. But the Bolsheviks took over and they were successful. Part of the reason they were successful crushing everyone out is if you look at it, I mean, Joseph Stalin was a stick-up man. He was an armed robbery guy when he started out his career and his life. He was a genius. He was very smart. But like the Bolsheviks took over because they were ruthless and they had a mission but they also in their own life had engaged in unconscionable actions, violent actions right. many times before they even started. And so when you're looking at people who run these things, think about the Pinkerton Detective Agency in the history of the United States of America. I can't. I don't know what it is. But okay. And I'm, I'm trying be to- Be brief because we're getting- we're, we're, we're approaching. We're, we're, we're approaching a, uh, you know, a barrier, which I, is called- um, We've gone too long. We've gone too long. (laughs) This is a good example. The Pinkerton Detective Agency was started out by one of the major uh, railroad conglomerates. I cannot remember which one at the moment, but it was big. And it was a private police force and private army, and it was also used to to break strikes and attack people. Mm -hmm. They would track people down. It was a police force. It was the FBI before the FBI fucking existed. And they would uh, break mine strikes, have spies... They would uh, tap telegram, telegram lines, intercept uh, telegrams. They would assassinate people. Like th- this is an example of kind of the situation that you're in. So what you're saying is we're going to defund the police. Bezos is going to recruit all the people, <clears throat> all the you know working class people that were pushed out of their jobs as his own private police force. Yeah that will break strikes at Amazon, that will protect his interests. Well, yeah. I mean, even if you look at something along the lines of sort of the- I mean, that's uh, what everyone's saying. Yeah. Well, if you look at the the hyper-wokeification of the military and the fact that like at at the moment- You mean the effeminization of of the the military. military. And at the moment, many of the people in the military coming from a region like the one that we're currently speaking in, the American Southeast, that uh, they are multi-generation military families. They want to make a career out of the military. They are centrist or they are conservative. They're Mm -hmm. generally one or the other, right? And these are the people that are in the special op- the special forces operation crews. They do all this stuff. Isn't it really convenient that if these people are run out of the military for having Trump sympathies or anything else, and they come from career military families, and that's what they want to do when they leave at a time where there are not enough jobs and their skill sets are very specific, that the best job offers that they're going to have are probably going to be working for private, private military security. firms, right? Yeah. So whatever the fuck Blackwater is called now, Excel or whatever stupid fucking name that it has. Like <laughs> the fact that you that these people will probably be pushed out of the military, many of them, unless something happens soon. They'll be pushed out of the military and the best jobs for them to get are going to be working at private security companies which protect billionaires. And these are very skilled people at what they do. And they have to make a decision, do I continue to feed my family and ply the stock and trade, yeah. not just of myself, but of my ancestors, the thing that I do, do I continue to do that or do I fold it up and try and get a job doing something else? They'll probably go over to the private contracting 
sector, and they'll probably be protecting people like Jeff Bezos and George Soros and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. These are the people that they'll be protecting. These people getting pushed out of the military, you'd think to yourself, why would someone ever do that? Like, then the military gets weaker. Well, they, in one sense of the military, they're like, well, we have more automated uh, weapons that we can use to, technology to beat our opponents. Right. How'd that work out in Afghanistan? We got, we got some problems in the Middle East. Well, yeah. we'll send some robots. Some robots over there. And again, how'd that work out in Afghanistan? How'd that work out in Syria? Didn't really fucking work out. But again, there's a certain short-sightedness and these... Uh, they are technocrats in the sense that they believe that every single solution to a problem can be solved technologically. Right. Even though we just got, for 20 years, we've had the shit kicked out of us repeatedly in Afghanistan. Well, it's a, it's a frightening prospect because you would imagine, you know, idealist, idealistically, you would imagine, a, you know, a center-right, conservative-type, yeah. military-type would at some point, you know, if they get wrapped up in all this, go, hey... I'm one of the baddies. I'm fighting for the wrong side here. Yeah. But then you think about this this little Mark Twain essay that I read last week when we tried to do our abortive um, podcast. The whole point of the essay is that most people have the opinions that keep the money coming in. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they're not gonna say, you know, well. Jeff Bezos is paying me, mm-hmm. but he's also disrupting my family's communications. And my cousin over there just got locked up by uh, some other, some guy that I work with. He's going to go, well, my family's not paying the bills. Yeah. yeah. I guess I'll just go along with it. I'll go along with it. I'll slide along with it. And that is a real. One of the things to watch in regards to all of this in upcoming races for the U.S. Congress is that you're going to have J.D. Vance out of uh, West Virginia, former uh-huh. Marine, uh, wrote Hillbilly Elegy, um, and he's a venture capitalist, uh, worked with Peter Thiel. Um, he's going to be running, and he's very When much is Peter Thiel going to drop back in and, and with some real, real dad energy? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm Peter Thiel out Peter of Peter Thiel needs to come out yeah. in a fucking leather daddy costume <laughs> and start whipping up Jeff Bezos yeah. and few, like really lay it on. Few, thick. few people in the American cultural landscape are as mysterious as Peter Thiel. Like I can't even, as I'm sitting here and I'm like pontificating and uh, theorizing and and you know just right half making stuff up out of conjecture that I think could be true about different people. We're writing fiction. We're writing fiction. Even as I'm doing that, like my ability to ever get a handle on like what Peter Thiel thinks. Mm -hmm. Like here's an example. That guy that I brought up previously, Curtis Yarvin, who's the American monarchist, who's a highly intelligent individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good friends with Peter Thiel. As is someone like Eric Weinstein, who's completely the opposite of, of Curtis Yarvin. Right, and at the exact same time, Musk is connected to Teal. Right. At the exact same time, Teal was responsible for creating Palantir, which itself is a huge CIA asset. Absolutely, right. So, like the my my ability to to track or get a handle on, I think Peter Teal may be this one of the smartest people speaking. I think English. he may be an algorithm. He, it's entirely possible it could be. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, Peter, Peter Teal may be one of the smartest people speaking English. He may be one of the smartest people alive. But for the speaking English part, I think it's almost certain. Like Peter Teal, 
has an understanding of the way things work and he sees farther ahead than anyone else, it's almost impossible to know what he believes. I can't se. remember if Peter Thiel is hot. When he was younger, he's pretty handsome. I don't know how he looks now. He's, he's like kind of like, you know, nerdy, studious, kind of hot. Um, I mean. He's tall. That counts. And he's I mean, got dark hair and I think dark eyes. He's, he's you know, he's, yeah. he's got a fairly good jaw on him. You know? I'm into it. Yeah, he's not, he's not an uggo. No, he's not an uggo. No, he's not by any sense. Which is many he of is these, a faggot too. Yes, so. he is. And a lot, of these, a lot of the people that are like- In another life. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the people at the, at the sort of in this infrastructure class, they are, they are uggos. Right. Like if you're, if you're listening- Elon to, Musk is an uggo. Elon Musk is an uggo. Jeff I mean, Bezos. Jeff, I mean- Jeff Bezos. People say he has a striking, he strikes a, a, no. a nice figure. No, he's, he looks terrifying. No, he, I mean, just go back and look at him before he got fit as well. Right, Ooh, just because wow. then, the, then this, the, the facial right and now. the skeletal structure, like 1999 Jeff Bezos. Just type that in and look at him. It's, it's, he's almost on par with kind of a <laughs> sallow- Oh, got the receding hairline, yeah, no, the bulging he's eyes. A Dilbert, he's a Dilbert character. Big old ears. Yeah, like no, he he. That's how he looks. Soft. Oh God, Elon Musk. Yeah. As a young guy. Oh. Yeah. Oh, he looks like a patient. <laughs> yeah. He looks like. He looks like in the he's it's special ed. Mm-hmm. Again, like there's right. Well, we'll this uh, is, we'll have guns at our. We'll have people with guns come to our homes in yes. the next week or so. And yes, we will. But it's a nice visit. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. But the <laughs> that's one of the things that uh, the dissident right constantly they constantly harp on at times to obviously crazy bullshit levels that don't apply. But as like a tiny point, they they constantly make they're like, look at the people who run your world just from a vantage point of physiognomy. Right. How do these people look? They look like the very bug men that we're fucking talking about, <laughs> don't they? They look larval. These people look larval. larval. That's larval. what they look like. They don't they do. look like if you They were grown in a pod. Yeah. Look at Bill Gates. Just look at him. Yeah. Look at George Soros. Just look at him. Yeah. Right? The look, Well, I, I posted yeah. on Facebook recently. I said, look, I'm coming out against bullying. Officially, because if you look at the people that run our world, that run the financial systems, that run the infrastructure systems, and that are poised to capture us in some dystopian nightmare, they all got bullied bullied as children, and they They are they're enacting their revenge, yeah, or trying to, yeah. Um, you brought a book. Did you have a passage to read, or was this? Oh, I, I I brought it in, and I would it would take me a second to actually find the passage. But uh, you got to mark them. You got to mark them. I know, I know. Um, but yes, these people look as to keep it going just for a second while I'm looking. These people do look larval. True. Like, I mean, they 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 have a they look are of, pod people. Yeah, I mean, and and that's you can't clearly judge. You cannot clearly judge people just on the basis of their appearance at any given moment, and it's ridiculous to do so up to a certain point. But isn't it like curious to you? There are no billionaires who look like fucking Terry Crews. I mean, the until people, you run across an image like this. Yeah. 
And then you say, I have to judge you based on your appearance. Yeah, but even there, and we're looking at a, a fairly recent picture of uh, Jeff Bezos in a tuxedo with like a white shawl. Right. Right. And he, it's, but even when he decided to get fit, I mean, he fucking looks like Lex Luthor. Even from, <laughs> he looks like a comic book villain, even when he decides to live his best life. That's what he fucking looks like as a comic book villain. It's We live in the age of comic book villains coming to life. Yes. Coming to life, and it's extremely... On our TV screens and uh, in our upper atmosphere. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's preposterous. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Also, Elon Musk, 1999, had a very severe receding hairline. Elon Musk has got some plugs. Elon Musk yeah. has got some... Uh, he's not just terraforming Mars, he's terraforming his scalp. <laughs> yes, he is. Jeff Bezos went went the smart direction. He just shaved it all. It's really the only move. It is. Yeah. No, you might as well just go ahead and shave your head off. I mean, one of the things you can say about Gates, I guess, is that he's he's kept his hair. You know, Gates has gives no shits about his appearance. No, he never has. He's he's a hardcore nerd. I mean, yeah. he comes from a family of like he's basically a brain. That just you know he's the he's the brain in the Ninja Turtles thing. Like yeah, he he's lives Stephen Hawking without the debilitating. Yeah, no, that's very good, very good. That's that's a good one. You know, even yeah. looks like him. I mean, if Stephen Hawking hadn't been in the wheelchair, he would not look much better than he did. He would look like Bill Gates. Yeah, he would. You know, I hate to say that Stephen Hawking could have just turned into some massive musculature. You're only saying that because, like, Eddie Redmond played him in the film and before he got sick. Like, Eddie Redmond's, you know, he's not hard on the eyes. I mean, he's a, he's a handsome enough man. He's kind of skinny, obviously. I don't know him. And I've never seen that film, so no, that's not why I'm saying that. Okay. But Eddie Redmond. Yeah, I think Eddie Redmond played him. This is what you're, this is what you're paying for, folks, is me looking up guys <laughs> on Google Image Search to see if, yeah, he's a hot one. Yeah. He's a looker. He's got good bone structure. And he's got, you know, those slightly larger eyes, you know, like anime style. That yeah, yeah, yeah. People like more. The high cheekbones. I'm not usually a fan of the high cheekbones. We've discussed this before, like privately. Like, yeah, it's it's one of those things where just high cheekbones on its own to make someone look good. I've never understood Mm-mm. Um, Mm-mm. how that by itself is a thing. Like, you, you can't have just, like, you know what? Having a prominent chin as a man... And like a square jaw can be good, but if all you had to say about some dude was like, "You got high cheekbones," but he didn't have the other stuff with it, right? Like, what, who gives a shit? So he looks like some kind of gothic form. A woman can pull it off. Yeah, a woman, a can, woman can do without a chin. Yeah, all the other stuff if she has the cheekbones. Now she's got to work for it, but yes. Well, I can't. Right, we've stalled long I, enough. Yeah, I can't find this passage on an, another day at another time, but it's actually really good. So great. But well. That's also what you're paying for. Disappointment. Disappointment. Ray, thank you for coming in. Nah, thank you very much, Johnny. We'll see y'all next time.